0: Welcome to Suspending the Rules, the Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress.
1: Hi, thanks for joining us on Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government's Legislative Analysts. I'm Adam Shank.
2: And I'm Danielle Parnas. On this episode, we're looking at a couple of issues that are coming to a head next week. The first is another round of sanctions on Iran, which are scheduled to be reimposed on November 5th. In the second segment, we'll talk about campaign finance and the flood of cash for mega donors before Election Day.
1: Back in May, President Donald Trump withdrew the U.S. from the Obama administration's landmark deal with Iran, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Under that agreement, Iran agreed to give up its nuclear weapons development capabilities in exchange for sanctions relief.
2: Next week, sanctions on Iran's energy sector will be reimposed. Legislative analyst Noreen Chowdhury has been covering this for us, and she joins us now.
3: Hi, Noreen. Hi, Danielle.
1: So let's get some quick background for anyone who hasn't been closely following the situation with Iran. What are the basic outlines of the nuclear deal?
3: So this deal was the culmination of 13 years of negotiations, mainly between Iran and what's collectively known as the P5 plus one. The P5 are the five permanent members of the U.N. Security Council, which are the U.S., U.K., France, Russia and China the plus one is Germany. What the negotiations boiled down to was, really, how are we going to allow Iran to have access to the benefits of nuclear energy while maintaining global security? That depends on Iran not developing a nuclear weapon. The Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action was the product of those negotiations. First, the deal would indefinitely ban Iran from any activity to develop a nuclear bomb. Second, Since Iran has the ability to produce weapons-grade uranium and plutonium, the agreement would place clear limits on the level of uranium enrichment, its stockpile, the number of centrifuges and the amount and use of heavy water. Third, Iran would have to submit to long-term inspections of their nuclear facilities by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Now, in exchange, the U.S., EU, and the U.N. would waive specific sanctions allowing Iran to re-engage with the world after really decades of isolation.
2: Now, so why
3: did the Trump administration pull the
2: U.S. out? The president made it very clear that he was opposed to this deal, and so how did we get
3: to where we are now? So President Trump really opposed the the deal from the start. You know He claimed it needed to go further and also address Iran's behavior outside of its border. First, um, the limitations on Iran's nuclear program would expire in 15 years, and he wants those restrictions made permanent. Second, inspections by the International Atomic Energy Agency would have to be strengthened at all facilities. Third, Iran's ballistic missile program would need to be curbed. And finally, Iran would need to cut off funding for proxy groups engaging in terrorism. For example, its support for Hezbollah in Syria and Lebanon, Hamas in the West Bank, and the Houthi rebels in Yemen.
1: And that's a really important point, because that's partially why congressional Republicans opposed the deal uh, from the outset, correct?
3: Correct, yes. And,
1: And sanctions for those activities were not waived under the agreement, is that right?
3: Under the nuclear deal, the U.S. lifted what we call our secondary sanctions, which affects other foreign countries doing business with Iran. But primary sanctions, which curb US companies and individuals from engaging with Iran, were never lifted.
2: And we also know that President Trump said he wanted to bring Iran back to the table. Has this worked so far? Have they been renegotiating?
3: So the short answer is no. Um, The UK, France, Russia, China, and Germany remain committed to the deal. In fact, the EU introduced a countermeasure in August that would allow its member states to protect European companies doing legitimate business with Iran. Iran has also pushed back. In response to U.S. requirements for what a new nuclear deal would look like, Iran outlined several demands. For example, the U.S. would have to acknowledge its actions against Iran, such as freezing billions of dollars in assets. Iran's president has criticized the U.S. withdrawal, saying the Trump administration is really just trying to pursue a regime change in Iran. He maintained the U.S. would need to honor the nuclear deal and reverse sanctions before any renegotiations could take place. So its commitment to the deal remains conditional. In fact, the Iran's supreme leader warned that if the EU doesn't take action to maintain Iran's existing revenue from oil sales, then it would resume its nuclear
1: activities. But a lot of countries that have purchased oil from Iran traditionally have started to reduce their purchases as a result of this. Is that is that right?
3: Correct. So China, Iran's largest oil importer, has already directed at least two state-owned firms to avoid purchasing Iranian oil. It's unclear if uh, China will fully comply with U.S. sanctions, but, you know, we'll see post-November 5th. India, the second largest importer could stop oil purchases from Iran altogether. And what this means is they could push Iran closer to Russia. So take us back really
2: quickly to November 5th. What's the importance of this date um, that a lot of people have been watching?
3: So on November 5th, the U.S. will be restoring the second and final set of secondary sanctions, this time targeting Iran's oil exports. We'll also see sanctions on Iran's banking and energy sectors. Licenses allowing foreign subsidiaries of U.S. companies to do business with Iran would be revoked, and hundreds of Iran-related entities would be relisted under the Treasury's Blocked Entities List. Back in August, the first round of sanctions affected the flow of cash in and out of Iran, including a ban on its auto industry. And licenses that allowed for the sale of commercial aircraft was revoked as well. What's important to note is that neither of these sanctions would block any supply of humanitarian-related goods, such as medicine, nor affect transactions relating to civilian aviation safety.
1: All right. Thanks, Noreen. We'll be right back with a look at campaign spending heading into next week's midterm election.
3: Thanks for having me.
1: Next Tuesday, Americans will go to the polls voting in what has become the most expensive midterm campaign ever.
2: Campaign spending has exceeded more than $10 million a week just from outside groups. Ken Doyle, senior editor for Money and Politics here at Bloomberg Government, joins us now to break down the money race ahead of November 6. Welcome, Ken.
1: Nice to be here. So Ken, where is this money coming from?
0: The money is coming from super PACs and other outside groups which are allowed to take unlimited amounts from wealthy donors, corporations, and unions, and spend unlimited amounts uh, on campaigns. So they're targeting it towards the most competitive congressional campaigns, the campaigns that will decide control of Congress after the election.
2: And why is so much coming from outside the official campaigns and party apparatus?
0: Because under court decisions, including the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision, super PACs and other outside groups that are not formally linked to candidates are allowed to take unlimited amounts of money and spend unlimited amounts, unlike candidates and political parties, which still are subject to contribution limits.
1: So following some court rulings, the FEC or the Federal Election Commission this quarter has required some outside groups paying for election ads to disclose their donors in filings. Have you seen any effects of that in the most recent reports?
0: Honestly, we haven't seen a lot of effects from that because there's still some subject to interpretation. The FEC guidance that followed those court rulings, the court ruling struck down a previous FEC rule. The FEC issued new guidance and some of these groups that want to keep their donors secret are continuing to interpret the guidance to say that they can do so.
2: What can we learn from which races money is flowing toward?
0: Well, the main thing that we learn is the the most competitive races. I mean, if you look at the polls and the and the amount of money being spent, they they line up uh, almost exactly. And then you can also learn, you know, which races are becoming competitive as these reports reports of independent expenditures by these groups. One one thing that they do have to report is uh, when they're spending money, making large expenditures for campaign ads and so on. And so if you look at where that where those uh, where that money's being reported, you can see the races that are becoming competitive. You can see the races that are continuing to be competitive. And what you see is, you know, maybe half a dozen Senate races that are the most competitive and where the most money is being spent. And then you see dozens of house races where there are large amounts of outside money coming in.
1: So what are some of those bigger races? I I know a lot of people talk about the Missouri Senate race and Senator Claire McCaskill, but what are some of the other ones? And what are some of those House races you just mentioned?
0: Let's see. Nevada and Arizona are Republican-held seats where Democrats are spending a lot of money trying to flip. And then you have uh, states like Indiana, North Dakota, Montana, West Virginia. Those are states, uh, Democratic incumbent states, where the Republicans see a chance to to take over. Uh, And so, uh, you know, you see in the Senate, you see Democrats defending a number of seats and then Republicans defending a few seats. And that's why, you know, the Democrats have a very narrow path, if there's any path at all, to take control of the Senate. In the House side, you see almost all of the competitive seats are Republican-held seats, seats that are open because Republicans are retiring or Republican incumbents that are basically under siege from uh, Democratic candidates and, and donors who are pouring a lot of money into these races.
2: There's a lot of attention on the Texas Senate race between Senator Ted Cruz and Congressman Beto O'Rourke and a lot of the money that Congressman O'Rourke has raised. That's a little bit different, right?
0: Yeah, that's money raised at the grassroots level. So one of the things that's happened on the Democratic side this year is there's a lot of enthusiasm among small dollar donors, and there's also the technology available for somebody to just uh, click a mouse and to donate. So we've seen huge amounts coming into sort of high profile races, candidates like O'Rourke who have sort of captured the imagination of Democratic donors, and and you see this in in other races as well. That's you know separate from this uh, money from outside groups, which is which you know, little, fairly little of that has gone into the Texas race because it's not seen as particularly competitive, actually, um, in the polls and so on. But, you know, uh, that's, uh, there's a a separate phenomenon going on with small donors as well.
1: So just to take a a quick step back, when we're talking about the money from outside groups, is there some limitation on what that money can be used for in an election?
0: Well, uh, there's not necessarily a big limit on, on what it can be used for. It can be used for campaign ads, it can be used for phone banks, canvassing, a lot of the stuff that that candidates and parties uh, also spend money on. The the limit really is on uh, what's called coordination between candidates a- and outside groups. The FEC has these very complex rules trying to define what that means. The, 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 under the court rulings, under Citizens United and the other court rulings, the spending is supposed to be independent of candidates. And then you get to the question of what does that really mean? Well, it means it's not coordinated with a candidate. So then you have these rules defining coordination. And under the FEC rules, it's actually pretty hard to find coordination. So you find that these groups are actually doing things, a lot of the things that the candidates want them to do, and they signal to each other that the candidates even help them raise money. And all of that is interpreted by the FEC to still be independent spending and, and, uh, you know, correct under the rules.
2: So how did we get here again, looking at the big picture, this becoming the most expensive midterm campaign? Are there specific factors that have led to this?
0: Yeah, I think there's two factors. One is that it's a very competitive election with a lot riding on it, right? There's a lot riding on There's control of com- Congress, obviously. But there's really the future of, of the Trump administration, potentially, and the direction of the country. So that's the main thing. And so people with a lot of money that are interested in politics know that this is the race that they want to put their money on. The other part of it is that the contribution limits and restrictions on campaign finance that have existed over the you know the past couple of generations, really, have been eroded away by court decisions, by the FEC, by just the way that, you know, things have gone in politics where people with a lot of money feel completely licensed to spend as much as possible to influence politics. And you're seeing that those two factors come together to see, you know, to create this enormous wave of money.
1: All right. Thanks, Ken. That does it for this week's episode of Suspending the Rules. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg Government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Shank. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com.